Welcome to Dialogues in Afro-Latinidad, a podcast dedicated to amplifying and elevating Afro-Latin American and Afro-Latinx histories, cultures, and communities. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Reed Vasquez. Join us for conversations with experts and artists to learn more about Afro-Latinidad. Venga. Hello and welcome back. My name is Israel Herndon and I'm guest hosting five special episodes with participants from the 2022 Summer Institute on Afro-Latin American and Afro-Latinx Studies funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities. This two-week conference was hosted by the Afro-Latinidad Studies Institute, which also runs this podcast. And today I'm excited to welcome Ashley Nguzi Aguasoga. Ashley Nguzi Aguasoga is a scholar and writer whose research interests include Black and Indigenous hemispheric feminism, racializations, especially in settler colonial regimes in Latin America, nation-state formation, foodways, and geography. Her training at the intersections of anthropology, Black studies, Indigenous studies, and archival research continue to inform her teaching interests in academic work. She is currently working on two projects. The first contends with ongoing settler colonialism and mestizo nation-state formation during the shift to multiculturalism throughout the Americas. The second connects the Black-slash-Indigenous Pacific and Atlantic worlds through foodways. Both projects think with the rise of Afro-Indigenous and Black-slash-Native visibility as a mode of unsettling foundational racial logistics throughout the Americas. Currently, she is an assistant professor slash faculty fellow at the Gallatin School of Individualized Study at New York University. She earned her PhD in anthropology from Northwestern University in 2022. Before arriving at NYU, she was also a predoctoral fellow at the Woodson at the University of Virginia from 2020 to 2022. Born and raised between Austin, Texas and Canton, Mississippi, she is also a former organizer and proud CUNY alumna. In her spare time, she loves to cook big meals and be by the water and see new places. Hi, Ashley. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. How are you, Israel? Good. And we're so glad to have you here. But just to get things started off, how did you become interested in Afro-Latinidad? Ooh, oh my gosh. A long, funny story. I'll try to bridge it as much as I can. Um... So I grew up in Texas, between Texas and Mississippi, but mostly in Texas, um, in a predominantly Latina community, uh, mostly um, Tejanos, uh, Mexican-Americans, and recent um, migrants from Mexico, which um, is super, super important to distinguish mm. <laughs> in a place like Texas uh, um, for lots of various reasons. Um, but yeah, I noticed growing up, um, that there were like distinct and sharp racial lines on who could be considered Latino and who cannot be considered Latino, mm. right? Um, and blackness was out of that peer view. So um, I remember being taught that, for instance, all of um, all enslaved Africans that were brought to this side of the world, which history books will call the New World, and I put that in quotations. Um, I was taught that they were all brought to what is now the United States, some in Canada, um, and not Latin America at all, right? So that's a really important part of um, how I got to the work, because um, I didn't know that Black people existed in Latin America until college, until I moved mm. to New York City for college, and I saw people who look like me speak Spanish, right? Um, it's 
it's really um what's the word <laughs> that's not a curse word it's messed <laughs> up that <laughs> yes that I wasn't taught that um mm-hmm. but also that um everything that surrounded Latina dad uh, particularly from a Mexican perspective um constantly excluded blackness mm-hmm. so I remember when um this might age me a bit but um when Oya Mi Canto came out um the song um and the remix came out with Noriega and Noriega the rapper was you know like spitting or whatever and um I remember all of us at school being like that guy looks black and people like Latinx folks being like oh no he's he's Indio it's just the sun Right. Oh, until I got to college and being like, oh, actually, no, there were millions, right? 93%. Mm -hmm. I think the statistic is like 93% of enslaved Africans were brought to Latin America and the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. Only, I think, like six or 7% were brought to what is now the United States. And so I guess from there, I've but it's it's taken me on a long journey to the work I do now. But essentially, I keep asking, why was I not taught this, both mm. in the U.S. system, but also, um, why, why is it issued from, um, Latin American histories that are taught in the U.S. and in Mexico, where I currently work, um, why. Did it take up until 2019 for the Mexican Senate to recognize Afrodescendientes in Mexico? Um, where still today, people will say Black people do not exist in Mexico. And if they do, they're foreigners or they're criminals, right? So these these stories and narratives kind of shape uh, why I do the work that I do today. And thank you for sharing that. I think that it's something that we hear a lot in this field is about the invisibility of Afro Latines and how and what their experience looks like. Yeah. And so with that, what are you passionate about with this topic? And I know folks have heard your bio and you do a lot of different things. <laughs> I do too much. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, what, what am I would passionate you about? Mm-hmm. Mm, that very question, why? Um, my parents have always said I'm a nosy kid, and mm. <laughs> and everyone, all my friends will say I am nosy in the best ways because I'm like, well, why did that happen? Right? Um, so once again, that question, why, why has blackness? And Black indigeneity been issued for or like excluded from the narrative of Latin America and the Caribbean, right? And what implications does that have for thinking about Latinidad um, or not or outside of Latinidad um, here in the United States, right? So um, this is timely, I think, because in particular, there's um, there's a whole discussion around. Latine becoming a race on the U.S. Census mm-hmm. and Black and Indigenous folks from Latin America that are residing in the U.S. now are like, whoa, 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 this is further erasure, right? Um, and so I'm I'm really interested in thinking about those questions as well as um, thinking about Blackness as expansive, right? Um, 
Um, and I guess illuminating the histories that we have where Black people are not necessarily um, closed off into nation states, right? We've been communicating with each other um, for hundreds of years, right? Mm -hmm. um, through migration, through, tra uh, through different kinds of travel, through writing, through um, in diff different influences on like social movements. Um, and I think that's really important to understand where we're at today. Around asking those questions of why, what are some of the methods that you use to answer those questions? Yes. Okay. Um, good question. So um, I'm formally trained as an anthropologist. My PhD is in anthropology, um, but I find my theoretical homes more in Black and Indigenous studies. Um, with that said, um, I use um, a lot of ethnography. So I've spent uh, months and months and months, and it will turn into years and years and years, um, talking with communities um, on the ground, and I put that in quotations, if you will, talking mm -hmm. to everyday people about um, what Blackness means to them, what indigeneity means to them, um, what recognition or unrecognition means to them, especially in this moment where Mexico's like, okay, we're going to recognize our Black population, right, um, and continue to recognize our Indigenous population. But for them, they may, they may see a difference between what Black means to them and what Black means to the state mm. and what Black means to non-Black folks. Um, and same thing with indigeneity. Um, and so I think ethnography really captures um, though that friction between like the differences mm -hmm. um, but also gives an alternative view outside of say institutional race racializations mm -hmm. um but sometimes ethnography can be really tough <laughs> and um when coupled with like really hard theory and i put theory in quotations like academic theory um some things cannot be translated, um, you know, oh, and sometimes yeah. I turn to poetry, actually, poetry and the arts. Um, I myself do not consider myself a visual artist, per se, but I think sometimes um, looking at maps, right, looking at, um, at visual art, looking at the way that poets can construct really complex ideas <laughs> um, into a poem, um, that says so much and so little. Um, I use that as well to think about um, how sometimes there's not a grammar for the ways in which Blackness um, in Latin America, I mean, throughout the Americas, really, um, how Blackness cannot necessarily be, or especially around Blackness and indigeneity, um, how sometimes it cannot be articulated in the ways that the Academy demands. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, I think that art, too, is such a, I, I think from a even historical standpoint, mm -hmm. art for a lot of folks in these communities that you're talking about, Indigenous and Black communities, who have not been included in some of these conversations where historically art has been a way for them to express and convey some of those topics that, you know, 
in broader society or as you're talking about the state has been relatively ignored and absent and I I also too I don't know if this is too big of a question for the context of this podcast but just to kind of go back a little bit when you think about the distinct the the motivations of the Mexican state versus how black and indigenous people are uh, viewing themselves like what are some of the motivations that you see from the Mexican state and what's what are some of the gaps there Mm, that's a really good question that is debatable um okay (laughs) in my opinion right in my humble opinion (laughs) there is so a lot of people have documented what they call this like multiculturalist turn throughout the americas Mm. not just latin america right in which um post civil rights post independence there are these movements by marginalized communities to gain um, perhaps full rights as or full citizenship, if you will, um, from the states, the nation states to which they built, they inhabit, right? Not necessarily belong, but inhabit, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so we see this in Latin America, um, I believe in the like 70s, 80s, um, with recognition of indigenous communities, uh, particularly in Mexico, um, with the amendments to the Constitution in 1992, um, and it's supposed to essentially grant rights and recognition to communities that have historically been disenfranchised. Um, and then we see this with blackness um, in black communities through in Afrodescendientes throughout Latin America um, in the 2000s. So we have. Um, a lot of shifts in places like Brazil, in Honduras, in Colombia, um, in Cuba. Um, but in Mexico, that doesn't occur until um, 2015 when the intercensal survey first um, started uh, for to count Afrodescendientes. And then you have the 2019 um, constitutional amendments, and then you have the 2020 census, right? Um, arguably people are saying like, okay, yeah, this is, um, this is the result of decades, um, of fighting for recognition and rights from Black and Indigenous communities throughout, um, the hemisphere, um, particularly to essential for states to right their wrongs, uh, right, to bring in whatever demands that communities may have. So whether it's land, infrastructure, um, anti-discrimination laws, etc. However, we have seen still that even with these recognitions, discrimination has not gone down, right? In fact, it has morphed into um, another beast that we have uh, today, which I argue is, you know, multiculturalism is just another um, mutation of mestizaje, which is genocidal for Black and Indigenous peoples. So now in Mexico, for instance, in the context where I work, um, we have people who are really, how would you say, discontented uh, or discontent with um, with um, what the state has been doing. Because for them, they're like, okay, well, they don't recognize the Blackness that I recognize. Mm. 
or the state may extract some of like the cultural uh, portions of it to say, okay, yeah, we're this multicultural society. We celebrate this and that. Orchata y tamarindo is, is African too, you know, but it doesn't result in material uh, improvements for the lives of Black and Indigenous peoples. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting to see the shift um, and to connect it to in the United States where we're at, where, yes, we had the civil rights movement. Um, mm. we had, we've had our own constitutional amendments um, and Supreme Court um, rulings and stuff that are supposed to protect and uplift Black and Indigenous peoples here. But in fact, we seem to be worse off than we were in the 60s, right? Segregation is at an all-time high, right? Um, the police are killing more and more Black people <laughs> and Indigenous folks. Yes. You know? um, despite the, the so-called protections that the state has allotted us. And so I really am interested in tying this together hemispherically to say, okay, something something has to give, right? Perhaps mm -hmm. our liberation is not tied um, tied up with the state. And people have been saying that for, for years, for decades, perhaps, but it hasn't been the dominant um, narrative, I think, mm. in terms of liberation. Yeah, I, I, I think also too, <clears throat> what you're getting at as well is, you know, we see the things that people say change over time, but when it comes down to it, what is actually changing? <laughs> um, right. Right. which yeah is something I've learned probably the hard way <laughs> in the past couple of years because it's like right. oh you know these people are saying black lives matter and they did not want to say it you know four years ago but then it's like oh but they're still posting the same stuff on Facebook that they were before that was yeah. you know harmful and you know so yeah definitely and I think also to that hemispheric and transnational connections are super important in this because I think at least from a uh, U.S. standpoint I think that there's a very isolationist kind of almost mm -hmm. idea when we talk about history or even and, and very narrow understanding of what it means to be black. So I definitely really appreciate your work and the way that you are thinking about these questions. And so with that, talking, thinking about transnational, you were one of our uh, participants for the NEH Transnational Dialogues and Afro-Latinidad Conference. Yes. So I just want to start off by talking about how did that uh, expand to your previous scholarship? Oh, my gosh. Wow. Well, shout out to y'all first off. <laughs> y'all did an excellent, excellent conference. And um, I met people there that like I admire and cherish um, both in my academic work and outside of academia. Um, uh, gosh. Um I learned quite a bit, right? So I work predominantly in Mexico, um, but I want to expand hemispherically. And being at the Institute this past summer really taught me that how important it is to expand hemispherically. Mm. Right? I was in the room with folks that do work in the DR and in PR in um, in Brazil. Um, there's another person that does work in Mexico, Karma Frierson who's amazing and I, I've known for some time 
Uh, but to be able to talk to all of these folks and um, from different regions of Latin America and the Caribbean, but also different methodologies um, taught me that there are endless ways to understand the issues that we've um, come together to discuss, uh, particularly um, on Afro-Latinidad um, throughout the Americas. Um, yeah, especially like, you know, meeting Zuli and Eva um, that I think in a way gave me permission now that I'm like a, at the assistant professor level to mm -hmm. incorporate um, art into not only my teaching practice, but my research, um, which is amazing. And I think my students really like that. Um, and that has led to more expansive conversations um, about about blackness and indigeneity um, and how to understand it differently than what it may be constructed as um, on the institutional level. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm feeling really, really grateful for, for the Institute and um, all the time I was able to like sit and listen to everyone's different approaches to, um, to issues that are, affect um, Black folks hemispherically. And then what are some, what were some of your favorite topics or moments from the conference? Mm. Wow. Okay, the first that pops up into my head was the final, like the ending when everyone was dancing. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that I didn't know. I don't know. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's real. Yeah, that's like, what it was, was important was too. Um, <laughs> right? Because I remember in contrast to that first day where we were all kind of like, you know, all getting to know each other and everything was kind of quiet and all, but we got to know each other over the course of those two weeks. Um, and so um, not only did we get to know each other, but we've sustained, like we were trading information with each other. We're like, okay, let's keep in contact. We were, we were thinking about collaborations um, in the future. Um, right. So I think, that moment kind of crystallized for me why why spaces like these um, are great and why I enjoy them so much. Um, I also, I think, just really loved connecting with, um, with my cohort mates mm -hmm. uh, throughout the Institute, right? So whether it was workshopping our ideas, right, um, which we did, I believe, the second week of the Institute, where we were... Um, thinking about, say, like syllabi or um, future book projects. Um, I really appreciated the input um, from everyone. Um, I really also appreciated um, just the scholars that came in that like I've been reading for years, but never really had a chance to interact with. Um, and um, some of my favorite scholars, like, uh, for instance, Vanessa Valdez, uh, came in and, sp and spoke and that was really lovely um you know to connect with um and it just it just puts like a how would you say I guess the academy can be so scary sometimes mm. um like and very intimidating you know everyone is like in their books and writing all these really complex articles yes <laughs> but then you meet them and you're like ah everyone's a person mm -hmm. <laughs> you know 
and and most are nice you know some are not but most are <laughs> nice um and that and um I saw that once again reflected in um in the in the institute I um I had just graduated when I took part um and I actually in the middle of the institute I went back to Chicago to do the graduation ceremony and walk um if you will so I think um lastly I'm really grateful for having uh the transnational dialogues um program um because it helped me kind of transition into this like okay I'm no longer a grad student mm. I'm in, this is my capacity as a in a faculty role um and I could see the possibilities of what I can do um right at this level so um yeah always grateful and always appreciative um, I've even invited, um, so Zuli and, um, Eva, um, came and did a performance at NYU Tisch, um, a couple of weeks ago and I took my class, right? I'm teaching a class on Black and Indigenous Hemispheric Feminisms. Oh, um, that sounds cool. <laughs> yeah, right? It's, it's pretty rad. The students make it rad. And we had a week on grief and it fell perfectly into the week that Zuli and Eva were here do, um, doing a performance called A Requiem for Black Grief, mm. right? And it really, we came together um, afterwards and discussed it and it really touched the students, um, right? So that's that's an immediate um, effect of, of the Institute from the summer. Oh, that's awesome. And I'm jealous that you got to go. <laughs> <laughs> it yes. was great. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. And, you know, once again, I said this off camera, but Congratulations on graduating and now being a professor at NYU. But now that you're, you know, that person, <laughs> you got you got the credentials. And uh, so what were some of your key takeaways that you were able to take from the conference as you transition into this next phase of your career? My mind keeps saying, stay open. Mm stay open stay open to different methodologies stay open to um what people have to say right especially if they're for liberation mm. right um i may not agree with with some people's approaches to things um but if our end goal is liberation, that's our end goal. Yeah. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna sit with that and say that was that was my key takeaway from from the conference. Mm -hmm. Um as I mentioned before, I got to meet many, many different people from different walks of life, from different uh, um parts of the Americas coming in with different questions and and thinking through them with different methodologies right um and so yeah i think i think it reminded me to remain curious hmm. um and like i i had no idea for instance that opera could be such an important um way to think about blackness and indigeneity especially on Kiskeya you know um and Zuli taught me that right um I was like oh opera is like a white German thing right but yeah <laughs> uh, 
but the way in, in which people kind of absorb that and use it for their own uh for their own community's gain i think is really beautiful or like eva's work in the census right mm. i do work on the census but i never thought of it in the ways that eva thought about it right the as mm. obituary um thinking about um blackness in music with karma's work um even thinking about um latina that in psychology with with amy's work like it's there was so so much richness um you know and um yeah it reminded me to just remain curious and stay open mm. yeah and i think the stay open framework that's how i know that you've got that liberation framework because I feel like that's a very liberative way to think and <laughs> about um, takeaways and also um, it's almost a personal challenge as well to continue doing the work instead of staying in one place where it's like, how can we take what we've learned and go further? True. And so for our, for our listeners who um have learned a lot from you during this time and they're thinking to themselves, how can I know more? What are maybe one to two resources that they can check out for themselves? Mm. Also a good question. So um, for those who speak English, um, the work of Alan Palais Lopez um, is wonderful. They're um, a black Zapotec poet from Oaxaca, um, La Costa Chica in particular, um their poetry their um they came up with the term that is canceled um and i use that as an analytic framework to thinking about the limits of latinidad and mestizaje when it comes to black and indigenous communities um and so um they have work in both spanish and in english so for those in the u.s who do cannot read spanish or understand spanish I think that would be a really good jump, uh, jumping point, mm. as well as the work of Dash Harris, who is um, a Black Panamanian woman um, living in the U.S. Um, and she has been critiquing Latinidad with um, a colleague, Javier Wallace, um, also Afro-Panamanian from Austin, Texas. We like actually, my high school was right next to the catfish spot. Oh, super there. cool. Yeah, like 20 years ago. So. <laughs> Yeah. So um, those are really good sources in English. Um, in Spanish, um, the Instagram Afrocaracolas um, is really interesting. Um, the work of Leona Uhuru, um, shout out to her. Um, she has really, really beautiful things to say about Pan-Africanism and Prietitud in Mexico. She's an Afrodescendiente um, from Mexico City. Um, Sainabu Diet, who is um, a chef, an artist who thinks about um, blackness and oh, she, she's she's black Senegalese. Her dad is from Senegal and her mom is Nahuatl um, and uh, uh, or Nahuatl, excuse me, Nahuatl is the language and um, also born and raised in Mexico City. Um, and she has been talking about like um, Afro-descendientes in food um, and in, in the intersection between blackness, indigeneity, and foodways. Um, and last but not certainly not least, um, the work of filmmaker Ebony Bailey, who uh, considers herself a Blackican. She was born in California to a Black father and a, a, a mestizo, mestiza 
a Mexican woman. Um, her work, she's a filmmaker, um, and she thinks also about food and blackness and migration um, throughout Mexico. So shout out to all those people who <laughs> constantly um, held me down in thinking about Mexico, Latinidad, um, blackness. Um, and then um, I guess there's two more. I'll give two more shout outs. Um, Tito Mithans Alayon um, does incredible work um, on uh, blackness and transness. Um, in Latin America, um, his work is mostly in Spanish. Ita Varela, uh, Varela Huerta, um, as well, does stuff on Afro-descendientes in Mexico, particular, per particularly um, Black feminisms. Um, and then Yoali Rodriguez, um, who is based here in the U.S., but from Puebla originally, um, does work on ecocide and grief work. And that is really, really beautiful work in the Costa Chica where... Uh, where I also, I too work. So um, those are some really good folks to start off with, whether you speak English or Spanish and want to learn more about Blackness and indigeneity in Mexico and throughout Latin America and the Caribbean. Thank you for sharing those resources and thank you for taking the time to join me today. I really enjoyed getting to learn more about your work. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Dialogues and Afro-Latinidad, please subscribe to our podcast and tell a friend. For links to the resources mentioned in the interview, visit our website at michellereedvasquez.com forward slash podcast. <laughs>